Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The forced removal and imprisonment of substantially the entire West Coast Japanese American population tore up the lives of more than 100,000 people. It also ripped holes in the urban fabric at exactly the time when California began to experience an influx of black Americans from the South. The shifts had a huge effect on San Francisco, the Bay as a whole, and the entire West Coast. We'll talk with two historians about the lasting marks that internment left on our cities. But first, we talk with a 102-year-old survivor of the army prison set up to house Japanese Americans. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This week, we've been looking back at the imprisonment of Japanese Americans pursuant to Executive Order 9066. FDR signed the order 80 years ago tomorrow. It began a torturous process that forced Japanese Americans, including tens of thousands of citizens, to 10 army-run camps scattered across the interior West. Joining us this morning to tell us her story of that time, we have Yai Wada, who was living in the East Bay in 1942. She ran a business called Alice's Beauty Salon in Oakland's Chinatown. Thank you so much for joining us, Yai Wada. It's an honor to speak with you. Good to be here. Thank you very much. And here to help, too, is Yai's granddaughter, Joy Iwasa. Thank you so much, Joy. Oh, thank you for having us. Yai, do you remember how you felt when you first found out you'd be forced to relocate? Well, this is 1942 we're talking about. It was a, it was a time of hate. Uh, it, was, it was a time of war. So it was not a happy time mm-hmm. for all of us. I wasn't too worried because I'm an American citizen. I was born in Berkeley. I had everything I, I thought I needed to prove my citizenship. Uh, I had my birth certificate. I had my driver's license, my business license. I had everything that I thought I needed uh, to prove myself. I was worried for my father because he, he was not a citizen, but for myself, I was not worried. And then, yeah, the police actually came into your shop where you were a hairdresser. Can you talk about that day? 
Yes, there was two, two uh, policemen that came in that day and uh, told me that they were told that I would have to close my shop. And I asked them why. Their answer for everything I asked was because of national security. And for me, that was not enough. They wanted me to close right away. And I told, I handed them my, my comb and my brush. And um, I said, you, you finish them up and uh, I'll close my shop. The ladies, what did all the ladies say? The ladies all stood up. They all stood up and said, no, they didn't want uh, a policeman to do, finish their hair. So uh, uh, the police finally decided that, uh, okay, uh, they would let me finish off the day. Wow. I was angry, yes. Yeah. I was an American citizen. And after you had to close your shop, you were sent to Tanforin first, right? And what was your room there like? When we first uh, uh, got to Tanforin, first they told me that the rumors were that we would, we would be sent to uh, Utah in the middle of the desert someplace and left there, be left there. And then I realized they dropped, they stopped at a racetrack. It was Tamperan. I knew it was Tamperan. I had gone there with my, my husband before. And um, they assigned me to a, a apartment, they called it. And uh, it turned out to be a horse stall. One thing you do not forget about camp is the smell. It stays with you forever. I asked where was, where was the bathroom, and they told me to walk down about a block away uh, in a certain area, certain direction. I did, and there were two sh shacks. Of, uh, one said white, and one said black. I didn't know which one to use. I knew then that there were uh, others that were under discrimination, the same as us. We were not the only ones. You also experienced a personal tragedy at Tanforan, right? Are, are you okay talking to us about that? When I got to Tanforan, I realized I was not well. Um, I was pregnant. I was having a hard time. Uh, I did have a miscarriage. Uh, I was talking to a, a lady that was there that had a white coat on, and I didn't know whether she was a doctor or a nurse, but whatever, I told her to please look at me to see if the baby was all right. And uh, she told me, well, if you were pregnant that before, you're not pregnant right now. So after you've experienced this, you know, horrible physical and emotional experience at Tanforan. You then, as the rumors had indicated, you were sent to the middle of Utah to Topaz. What was your impression of that place? Uh, Utah, the camp that we stayed at was in the middle of it. We were assigned to uh, some barracks that were built 
in the middle of a desert. Uh, we were given a sack. I was told to fill it up with hay that was um, in a certain area of the camp. Uh, it was for my mattress. It was going to be my mattress. Mm. Um, so as, oh. It was scary. There was a, a barbed wire fence all around us. There were soldiers there with guns. And uh, we were told if we got too close to the fence, a barbed wire fence, that we would be shot. And this happened. So we knew uh, they were very serious. And um, can you share a little bit about the, the dust and the, the conditions? Because it was in the middle of a desert, the, the, the sand would uh, come up, come up uh, uh, in the evenings and uh, everything in, in our room would be covered with dust mm. uh, and sand. When my baby was finally born, I do remember having to cover her uh, with a blanket and um, to keep the dust out and the sand out. As I understand, you actually had a pact with some of your friends about how to protect your kids if something yes. were to happen. Yes. I had two friends, very close friends. Uh, we became closer because we were happened to be pregnant at the same time. Uh, maybe within a few months of each other, we were going to be having our, our babies at about the same time. We, were, we didn't know what was going to happen to us. We thought at some point they would have to get rid of us because... So what was the actual pact that you had? The pact that we had was that if anything should happen to one of us, the other two would come and pick up our, our baby mm -hmm. and make sure that, that the baby was raised uh, as our own. Did you... Yeah, did you think that you might be killed? Yes. Uh, what else? Uh, we knew that some at some point there would be, they would have to do something with us. So yes, we tried to hide the babies. We knew that eventually they would cry. And, and so it was, it was hard for us to find the right place. Eventually, you were able to leave the camp and transition back to post-camp life. What was that like, you know, having experienced that kind of fear, having had a baby in the camp and had that weight on you? When you were able to leave, what did you feel? Uh, when we were allowed to leave camp, the only thing is we couldn't come back home. We had no home that we that we were uh, allowed to come back to, but because my father owned a business and he owned the building, we were allowed to come back to uh, to his place. How did you react to reparations from the U.S. government all those years later? Well, record uh, reparation took a long time to come. I would say 
many years, maybe 40, about 40 years. And at all that time, I had this anger. Uh, I, I couldn't get over it. Uh, it was too much hurt. Uh, the reparation is when when you make uh, when you make something right that was wrong. I got this reparation from the president, and uh, one day when I was home, uh, after many years of of a hardship. And then I received this reparation from the president. Uh, it was an admission of something wrong that had happened. Uh, that's what I needed was the reparation. I needed that to, to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. uh, this letter and this apology and the admission that it was wrong. Yeah, now at... 102 years old. What do you want people to know about your experience just before we before we let you go? Today, I'm not angry anymore because I have hope. Uh, people are, are, are asking questions. They want to know what happened. Uh, they, they ask, they ask us questions and they want to know. And, and so it gives me hope that it's, everything's going to be okay. Thank you there so much. The hate will stop. Thank you so much. We've been talking with 102-year-old Berkeley native Yai Wada, who was imprisoned at the Topaz internment camp, as well as Tan Foran during World War II, as well as her granddaughter, Joy Iwasa. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us. It's been a real honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As we just heard, the forced removal of California's Japanese-American population was brutal. It also emptied out neighborhoods like the blocks near Fillmore, now known as Japantown, which became the new home of many black migrants from other parts of the country. 
The poet Maya Angelou recalled the Japanese shops which sold products to Nisei customers were taken over by enterprising Negro businessmen and in less than a year became permanent homes away from home for the newly arrived Southern blacks. The Japanese area became San Francisco's Harlem in a matter of months. San Francisco was permanently changed by the imprisonment and its knock-on effects, especially when combined with the legacy of virulent anti-Asian discrimination and a post-war period marked by an economically ascendant Japan and ailing American urban cores. Here to help us understand the way that the forced removal reshaped this place we live, we're joined by two historians. Meredith Oda is Associate Professor of History and Associate Chair of the Department of Gender, Race, and Identity at the University of Nevada, Reno. She wrote a fantastic book called The Gateway to the Pacific, Japanese Americans and the Remaking of San Francisco. Welcome, Professor Oda. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by Charlotte Brooks, a professor of history at Baruch College, City University of New York. Her fantastic book on this topic is called Alien Neighbors, Foreign Friends, Asian Americans, Housing, and the Transformation of Urban California. Welcome, Professor Brooks. So we just heard from Yaiwada about her experience in those early days before and after the imprisonment. And she called them a time of war, a time of hate. Professor Oda, can you walk us through the months that followed Pearl Harbor and then Executive Order 9066 from the perspective of the residents of the Japanese neighborhoods of San Francisco? Yeah, um, I mean, I think she encapsulates it so well, a time of hate and a time of war. Um, Although there was, I mean, there was a lot of um, kind of change and uncertainty throughout that period. I think that's what we see when we look at the oral histories or talk to survivors, the uncertainty. Um, And she hit a couple of things that I I noticed from a lot of people um, from this period. So for example, um, yes, there was fear, there was hate, but as you noted, a lot of what she said was the original fears was for the imprisonment of Issei or of migrants, Japanese migrants. And of course, because of a series of laws and international agreements and court decisions, Japanese migrants, unlike, um, well, like all other migrants from Asia, but unlike every other migrant coming from anywhere else in the world, Japanese migrants were, quote, um, aliens ineligible to citizenship, so could not naturalize. And so remained, were forced essentially to remain um, aliens, non-citizens. And so originally then, a lot of people right after uh, Pearl Harbor were worried for their families, right, were worried for their parents or their in some cases, grandparents, um, and less so for themselves. There was less of fear that, say, American-born citizens, right, uh, would be incarcerated or would be imprisoned or would be taken away or, you know, there was less fear for themselves, right, because they were citizens. There was great faith, I think, originally in the strength of their American-born citizenship. But so immediately after Pearl Harbor, there was, of course, a lot of fear. And you could go to Japantown and people in Japantown were, were originally very, very scared, tended to remain in their homes because, again, they were worried about what would happen. Mm-hmm. Japantown became something of a kind of circus immediately after Pearl Harbor, just because 
observers from the rest of the city kind of came in to gawk at the neighborhood and see mm. what was going on. And so I think that if anything heightened, right, the fear. Um, a lot of the response then came from, depended on the immediate response in the months following, depended on kind of the course of the war. So when Japan was doing really well in the Pacific theater, um, hostilities would rise. Um, and so uh, uncertainty sort of Ten, uh, drawn out for, for months um, until the point when Roosevelt signed executive order 9066. A couple of people even remembered kind of relief, right? We were so worried. We were so nervous. We didn't know what to do. It ended the uncertainty. But of course, for far more people, um, there was real fear, right? What was going to happen to us? Where were we going to go? Um, and know, just the tremendous just, losses of community and business and neighborhood and friends. And, you know, this week we've been talking with several uh, survivors of the camps and, and their families. And in this segment, I'm, I'm also hoping we can get to sort of what happened when people started to come back. Uh, Professor Brooks, your book opens with a fascinating assertion by an editor of The Nation at the end of World War II that California was the, quote, racial frontier of the nation as this multiracial, multiethnic place. Maybe you can describe the situation in California, specifically San Francisco, when Japanese residents who'd been imprisoned began to be able to come back to the West Coast if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, so the editor you're talking about, Carrie McWilliams, was you know, he was very optimistic in some ways that this was a moment that California would be able to address so many of the issues of race that had exploded in the nation during the war. Although I think he was also kind of skeptical that it would happen. And what had happened in San Francisco during the war was, you know, what Maya Angelou had said um, that you quoted earlier, that there was already before the war, um, the Western edition area was really um, often described as sort of this international district where Japanese Americans live next to African Americans and recent immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. When the war began, when the government removed Japanese Americans and placed them in these incarceration camps, um, this was actually at the end, of course, the, the, the war ends the Great Depression, but there hadn't been much building um, almost anywhere in the state because of the depression. And suddenly during the war years, in three years, a million and a half Americans from other parts of the country poured into the West Coast. Most of them went to the Bay Area or Los Angeles, which are these centers of defense production. You know, this is where the jobs were. And if there were jobs, people wanted them desperately because it had been a long depression. And so there was obviously in in um, there was an overcrowding situation uh, for housing during the war. There was simply not enough of it. Building materials were rationed. People were living wherever they could. But also um, in San Francisco, there was existing often state-sanctioned segregation um, that existed through deed restrictions and restrictive covenants. Mostly before World War II, it was aimed at Asian Americans. Um, it was most effective in terms of keeping Chinese Americans from leaving any living anywhere besides Chinatown. Japanese Americans felt it too. African Americans before the war, if they had the income, had relative residential flexibility. That ends during the war. And um, white citizens in San Francisco, whether newcomers or old timers, they basically try to keep blacks 
only within the Western edition. And there, you know, there's a lot of racial violence that accompanies that. So a lot of black markets move into the abandoned stores and apartments of the Japantown section. Uh, a number of them are able to live in temporary public housing projects that were put down into Hunter's Point, but only built for the duration of the war. Then Japanese Americans are finally, uh, as of January 1st, 1945, allowed to come back to uh, California and the rest of the West Coast. And there isn't enough housing for them. And actually, many city leaders begged the War Relocation Authority, which ran the camps, not to close them because there just wasn't housing. And they feared race riots. They feared what had happened in Detroit during the war and Harlem and New York and other places. Um, but I think they also had this fear that um, rural areas of the state, um, California was the main place where Japanese Americans have lived during the war, rural areas of the state were hotbeds of vigilantism against Japanese Americans coming back. And so those who did return and most returned really after June or July of 1945, they go to cities because there's more work there, because there's housing, because they've lost you know, there were land laws that prohibited them from owning land. So they illegally leased land or held it in the names of others. And all of that disappears during the war. It's all taken from them. It's just hundreds of millions of dollars of property is, is stolen from these folks. So they come to cities because that's the only place that's there's housing right. or, or economic opportunity, right? Or any kind of future. And so that's what you have after the war, this racial frontier. And so McWilliams is optimistic, but he's also very worried that this is going to be explosive. Yeah. We're talking about how the forced removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans reshaped the Bay Area cities during and after World War II with Charlotte Brooks, a professor of history at City University of New York and Baruch College there, and Meredith Oda, associate professor of history and associate chair of the Department of Gender, Race, and Identity at the University of Nevada, Reno. And we would love to hear from you. Did your family experience the changes that were occasioned by the imprisonment and return of Japanese Americans to the Bay Area? Were members of your family imprisoned? What was their experience on return? You can give us a call. Our number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or KQED Forum and the emails forum at kqed.org. Professor Oda, I wanted to come to you. Professor Brooks was describing the sort of overcrowding and the conditions there, you know, in the area we now call Japantown near Western Edition, where there's, you know, uh, a pre-existing Japanese population that's being added to by rural Japanese uh, folks who are coming to the cities and encountering a, a swelling black population in the city as well. What was the response of city leaders to this idea that the this part of town was overcrowded and dilapidated housing and, and all the conditions of American urban cores after the war? Um, yeah, and it kind of changed um, as these things do <laughs> over time. So originally when um, the announcement was made that the West Coast was going to open up and Japanese Americans could return to uh, their homes on the West Coast, um, San Francisco mayor issued a sort of very tepid response, essentially 
we can't do anything about it. So sure, you can come back. Um, LA's mayor initially was uh, hostile to the idea of return. So for a lot of, I mean, again, um, it's hard to remember this now, but of course, California, San Francisco in particular was really the hotbed of anti-Asian sentiment, right? In California through the pre-war period. And so for a lot of California leaders, uh, San Francisco included, there was a sort of you know, happiness in the incarceration, a sense that we could finally get rid of this, of this problem population. And so initially then during the war, there's editorials, there's, um, you know, city leaders saying like, this is the great opportunity. We can um, finally demolish what was called at the time, um, Japtown by a lot of, by a lot of leaders. So there was a real sense that this was a kind of opportunity. Um, but that also gives you the idea that even during the war, prior to the war, right, this was considered a slum area. Um, you know, Dr. Brooks um, kind of gets at this and she talks about it in her wonderful book. So um, makes clear. So um, there was a sense, even from before the war, right, from the Great Depression, that this was a slum, something needed to be done. And that was only exacerbated because of the overcrowding during the war. And then, of course, just because of segregated conditions, right? If you have a segregated population, landlords have no interest in keeping up the buildings because they have a captive tenant population. Um, so, and most of these are absentee landlords and so conditions just kind of dwindled. And of course, again, just overcrowding where an apartment would have a whole family living in an apartment. Now you might have a family per room. Yeah. So um, there was in fact severe um, kind of dilapidation of this neighborhood that residents talked about, all residents talked about, right? They lived in the neighborhood. They were very clear that they weren't happy with the infrastructure, with the conditions of the buildings, that some of the buildings were dangerous and fire hazards. Um, so for both residents, as well as city leaders, there was a sense that um, something had to be done. And this kind of leads into the urban renewal and redevelopment of the post-war period, which kicks off right away, you know, from 1949 onwards, there's direct plans to, um, institute some kind of urban redevelopment program in the yeah. city. Well, and, it, you know, we should also say when we're talking about these urban courts too, just that mortgage discrimination, redlining, and a series of, of other federal policies contributed to the dilapidation uh, and, and deterioration of so many um, urban cores, which the then- racial, Sorry, the racialization of the population too, of course- uh, then added on to the identification of these areas as blighted, right? The fact that Absolutely. these are racialized, segregated populations too, just added to their sense of kind of marginalization in the city. Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 absolutely. And, you know, you can see it even in the scoring systems that cities use, mm -hmm. like San Francisco and Oakland, to do these kind of blight determinations, which then stripped people of some of their property rights and opened them up to the kind of redevelopment that we're, we're talking about here. I... One of the fascinating things that occurs in both of your books, though, is like from that point right after the war where we have so much and broad anti-Asian sentiment, specific anti-Japanese sentiment. We have these neighborhoods where Japanese Americans live declared slums in part because of the, the racialization of the residents. And then you skip forward 15 years and... Japanese Americans are being celebrated and there's this tremendous relationship that city leaders try to develop between San Francisco, as a the quote from your book, Gateway to the Pacific. Um, how does that happen? And maybe, uh, Dr. Brooks, maybe we can start with you on sort of morphing of anti-Asian sentiment during these early years of the Cold War. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I will try not to summarize <laughs> 100 pages of the book, but um, essentially, uh, and what I've argued is that, you know, what Dr. Oda is talking about is you have this, um, I think San Francisco is a great example. You have a San Francisco housing authority that undertakes um, urban renewal on a very segregated basis. Um, and to give you a sense of this, before World War II, they uh, totally rejected the possibility of housing projects for Japanese Americans, wanted to have a separate black housing project and then rejected Chinese American projects, even though Chinese Americans were sort of begging for a housing project. Uh, after the war, uh, that starts to change. You start to have urban renewal. And by the early 1950s, in order to sort of parry criticism of its policies of segregation, the Housing Authority is using Asian Americans to so-called integrate all white projects. So this happens pretty quickly. Um, and what I think is the major reason uh, for this is that the Cold War really transforms how a lot of white Californians view the risks of discriminating against Asian Americans, whom they rarely dif differentiate from Asians. Um, it, you know, this is not as if they are now embracing Asian Americans as fellow Americans. That's not happening, unfortunately. What is happening is that Asian Americans, especially those uh, often who um, had um, access to education, usually GI Bill recipients, people who had gone to college during and after the war, um, were taking advantage often of the sort of Cold War defense industry in California, getting decent jobs, trying to move to the suburbs like a lot of other folks. And what happens is that um, there are a series of high profile incidents in which Asian American home seekers face threats of violence and discrimination. And they go public with these. Uh, the most, um, the sort of most famous of those incidents happened in 1952, not coincidentally, in the middle of the, the Korean War and involved a Chinese American couple in uh, a community just south of San Francisco, near the airport. Uh, the community was called South San Francisco. And it became uh, an issue where they tried to buy a home, their neighbors threatened them, and the man was named Sing Shung, his wife was Grace Shung. Sing Shung proposed putting this to a vote and said, you know, I believe in democracy. I've been told that America is a democratic country. We're in the middle of this war for democracy in Korea. Let's vote on it. And he lost overwhelmingly. Mm. And there was such outrage nationally that even the governor of California got involved. The Shangs got all these home offers. And what I think this scared a lot of white Californians into being was we don't want to be communist dupes. This can be an international incident if we discriminate. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is important. We're talking about how the forced removal of Japanese Americans reshaped the Bay Area cities, both during and after World War II. We'll, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum on the 80th anniversary here. It's actually tomorrow of Executive Order 9066. We're talking about how the forced removal of Japanese Americans reshaped the Bay Area during and after World War II. We're joined by Charlotte Brooks, who you heard just before the break. She's a professor of history in Baruch College at City University of New York, and her books include Alien Neighbors, Foreign Friends, Asian Americans, Housing, and the Transformation of Urban California, as well as Meredith Oda, Associate Professor of History and Associate Chair of the Department of Gender, Race, and Identity at the University of Nevada, Reno, and she is the author of The Gateway to the Pacific, Japanese Americans, and the Remaking of San Francisco. I want to get to a call and a comment here, and then we'll come back to our guest, uh, Catherine from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Yes, uh, I've been actively interviewing my uh, parents, um, mainly my father's side and my mother's side, about how uh, relocation impacted uh, them. Um, I am Chinese-American. Uh, my grandfather was often mistaken for being um, Japanese. Uh, as the scholar was saying, there really is no distinction between, you know, Chinese and Japanese or sometimes even Asian. So it's that epicanthal fold that kind of gets us in trouble sometimes. And along with that, on my fraternal side or paternal side, Uh, My family was driven out by the Japanese imperial invasion, but really what happened, I think, um, before the relocation of the Japanese and when my uh, grandfather was um, mistaken for Japanese, often instead of having like um, a negative or a fearful sentiment, I think he was just being, I think, sympathetic towards I guess, himself as an Asian and other Asians for being just caught in this crossfire mm-hmm. and just being so close to, I mean, thinking of America as a location of freedom when in San Fran, par, you know, the mall, that was the holding area. And just overall just having that sympathy towards himself and other Asians for just being caught up with, like, overseas, um, you know, uh, tension and how it impacts home right in your yeah. backyard. So it could happen thousands of miles away, but it can happen that tension arises from your neighbors, that they think that you're responsible for the international conflict. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, Catherine. I, I mean, I think, uh, Professor Oda, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is it, it kind of cuts both ways, like this sense of San Francisco as this trans-Pacific place where, you know, an attack could happen in the Pacific Ocean and Japanese-Americans in San Francisco could be imprisoned. But also as Japan rises as an economic power and as part of this sort of Pacific circuit of of economic influence, then Japanese-Americans are also bundled up into that configuration too. 
Yeah, exactly. And it all hinges right on the assumption that they're foreign, that um, mm-hmm. that they're not American, as the caller suggested. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of genocide coin, genocided coin, right? Because on the one hand, if you're associated with a foreign power and you're at war with them, that can lead to incarceration, right? Um, or like the sort of quote unquote economic wars of the 1980s and economic war, um, then that might lead to harassment, violence, even the murder of somebody like Vincent Chin, a sort of a classic example of a Chinese American who was murdered for presumably being for being assumed to be Japanese. So yeah, on the one hand, there's violence, there's incarceration, there's real consequences. But on the other hand, as you say, exactly. Um, and this is kind of what I was looking at in my book is that um, during the Cold War, pretty much you know, surprisingly right after we were at war with Japan within years, right? Japan becomes this essential ally because as Dr. Brooks says of the Cold War, Japan is this essential ally to kind of a a sort of capitalist um, bulwark in the middle of the Mm -hmm. Pacific to kind of keep the other Asian countries from turning into communism. And so Japan becomes this valued ally um, and the US sinks tons of resources and aid and assistance and direct money into supporting Japan's economy um, in the growth and helping to fuel that post-war Japan boom. Um, And so for Japanese Americans, that could be being assumed to be foreign and Japanese rather than American. Again, even if you're American born, it it could be an opportunity for those who were willing or could take advantage of it. So for example, um, we see this in Japantown. So um, some stores, for example, Soko Hardware is a great example. Um, It's a hardware store, but you could also go in and get, you know, cute little tchotchkes and (laughs) tea sets and so forth, right? And they made that turn in part during the Cold War because they knew that there was a rising interest in Japan. Like there was a kind of Japan craze, like Americans were interested in, you know, this is mid-century modern. So there's like Noguchi lamps and, minimalist decor. And so Americans are interested in Japan as well as um, sort of paralleling the geopolitical interest of American um, international relations in Japan. Um, And so, yeah, if for some Japanese Americans, they could take advantage of that, right? Less so if you were, say, a longshore worker, right? Just trying to keep your apartment in Japantown. More so if you are somebody like an entrepreneur, a shopkeeper, somebody who can turn your business to orient toward that. Um, It also, of course, gave Japanese American merchants, property owners, um, some with capital, uh, an opportunity to buy into the, or to participate in the redevelopment program of the Western edition, right? That's how we get the Japanese center and Nihonmachi today. Right. Which also, right, required on the city's part, bulldozing, taking land from from all kinds of people and, and mm-hmm. bulldozing lots of, of units. And Roberto wanted to uh, listen. Roberto wanted to follow up on that. Roberto writes, I'm so thankful you all are reminding us of these histories. It's so important to understand history so as not to repeat it. I've been so heartened by the solidarity and bravery of Japanese people who've been protesting the internment of immigrants in detention centers across the U.S. Importantly, black people also lost their homes and businesses in the raising uh, of the Fillmore. One of the questions I had for you, Dr. Brooks, in, in your book, you, you note that black Americans today are the nation's most residentially segregated non-white group, while Asian Americans are among the least segregated uh, people of color. Obviously, a, a lot of variation within the, the category there. And there were many of the Japanese and black people in the Fillmore were subjected to similar forces in terms of, of urban renewal. But 
Asian Americans were able to slip out of the urban core into many suburban communities that black Americans were not able to to move into, even though there were very similar incidents of uh, of families attempting to move into these neighborhoods. Their reception, though, seems like it was really different by the Bay Area's white communities. Yeah, it was it was quite uh, quite different and that was really i think the the main difference you see between before world war ii when san francisco was really the nation center of anti-asian uh, activism and politics and after world war ii um and that's why the cold war uh, what dr odo was talking about as well makes such a big difference because you know, we forget that the Cold War, of course, it was it was global. Uh, and we think about the U.S.-Soviet competition. But of course, the hot wars in the Cold War uh, took place in Asia, took place in East Asia. And these were places where the United States had not really had much political interest before World War II. Um, you know, the, the war is the beginning of America's career as a superpower, but also as an Asian superpower. The United States did have a colony in the Philippines, but was sort of uh, changing its uh, approach to that by the 1930s. And the United States did not have a strategic interest in China or Japan, and suddenly that changes. And so the Korean War, um, and America's stationing of troops in occupied Japan, all of these things, especially for California, which was a, you know, a major center of Cold War defense, not just manufacturing, um, but also military bases. And so this, this military presence in Asia and its meaning was obvious in everyday life in the Bay Area and the economy and just the people that you had living in your neighborhood. And I think that is one of the reasons that the um, the the outcry about anti-Asian American discrimination was so powerful because this was a period when there was paranoia about internal communist subversion in the United States. And when, because people couldn't go out, most ordinary Americans couldn't go out and you know fight communism the way they sort of believed they should, the way that they could take action was by sort of thinking about how they could contribute or to the fight against internal subversion. And so people like the Southwood neighbors or many other white neighborhoods that initially rejected Asian Americans found their, found their neighborhood names and their, their residents sort of plastered across the newspapers in, in these embarrassing series of events that made them into essentially communist dupes. Nobody wanted to be a communist dupe in the McCarthy era. And so there's a grudging, growing acceptance of Asian Americans. And then an attempt to sort of transform them from what in 1952 in the, in the Sing Shung incident was, we have to accept these people because they're internationally significant into, no, Asian Americans are, they're just like white people. So they're acceptable and they improve the neighborhood. It's not an acceptance based on equality. There's a recognition still of this sort of essential difference because there's a there's a sort of unwillingness to recognize that Asian Americans are anything but foreign. That remains. That's you know, that's part of this Cold War acceptance, if you can call it that. But African-Americans don't get that. They don't get that extended to them and they face increasing violence as they basically just want to live in decent places too, right? So there's a real transformation in the 50s. And, you know, I, I think that you could also talk about, um, you know, Asian-Americans, African-Americans, uh, Latinos fighting in civil rights um, coalitions to try to change this 
But in the end, Asian Americans are able to break out because they do face more acceptance, but it is an acceptance that is not complete and not based on recognized equality. When reading the story in your book about the Shank family, I, I couldn't help but think of the Gary family up in Richmond's uh, Rolling Wood who encountered much of the same resistance, but instead of being seen as anti-communist to integrate the neighborhood, they were actually seen as communist allies. Um, black families trying to uh, to move into formerly white neighborhoods. It's a it's a pretty tremendous uh, argument that you make there, and it's um, really a, a history that I'm really happy to have learned. Um, Professor Oda, I was wondering if you could tell us, I mean, about some particular Japanese American families in San Francisco and how they managed these incredible crosswinds of race relations as the post-war period went on. Um, sure, yeah. Um, I mean, so as Dr. Brooks was saying, um, they uh, some families, some households, some individuals or proprietors had opportunities that they hadn't had before, in part, not again, because of sort of general uh, feelings of equity, but just because um, there was a kind of hard knuckle um, opportunism, I guess, to it. Um, and I think the point that Dr. Brooks makes that it's this contrasts um, the support that they get, the sort of ideological support, also the state support, right, that some Asian Americans get, Japanese Americans in particular, vis-a-vis African Americans is really significant. And they're able to draw on that. Um, so by the time we get to the 1950s or 60s, you can ha- start to see, um, our colleague, Dr. Ellen Wu has a book about this, so you can start to see the development of this model minority myth. Um, but uh, let me just, I just wanna add in because I think the state uh, role in this story is really important. So mm-hmm. starting from the resettlement period, from the period where Japanese Americans are leaving the incarceration camps, or maybe they're leaving their resettlement cities out in the Midwest or on the East Coast and coming back to San Francisco or even resettling wherever they resettle, right? They have access to tremendous resources um, from state, from private institutions um, that really give them kinds of support that say, you know, the black migrants coming from the South into the war industries in the Bay Area don't have, right? So access to educational um, support, direct financial aid, housing support, uh, medical support, links with social security, aid, social welfare organizations. I mean, these are all tremendous networks um, that are essentially kind of, that Japanese Americans themselves create, but that the state has this tremendous sort of investment in Mm -hmm. because by the end of the war resettlement has taken on this incredibly important and ideological kind of um weight uh you know the six the quote-unquote success if you can call it that of the incarceration program was the successful um resettlement of japanese americans into communities um all over the country idea was what officials were hoping but most returned to uh the west coast of california so um you know they kind of start out Japanese Americans kind of return. I mean, and this is kind of ironic, obviously, right? Because they also are starting out from zero, right? Because they've lost property. They've lost careers of a lifetime. They've lost um, businesses and homes and property, right? So there's tremendous loss, but there is this support, which I think is really important and that they can then sort of grow and build on in the years following. Um, So for example, some Japanese Americans, for example, in Japantown, um, some merchants, right? Um, 
returning to Japantown, uh, once they hear the redevelopment program is happening in, in, in their neighborhood or in their district, um, you know, are understandably worried, right? They're just years home from, from incarceration. They've just been rebuilding homes and communities and businesses. And now, now they hear they're going to be wiped out again. Like, you know, that's, um, and actually many survivors talked about it as the second in internment, like, or as the second mm-hmm. evacuation, the second eviction, right? The second state-sponsored um, eviction from their homes. First, it was to incarceration camps. Now it's by redevelopments, bulldozers. And so they're worried, but they're able to turn again because of the dyna- some of the dynamics that Dr. Brooks talks about. They're able to turn to um, the city and have an ear, I think, that you know African-American organizations or property owners don't have. Um, and so by the time Japan becomes this kind of... Um, you know, there's this Japan craze and people are interested in Japan and it's become this important international partner. Um, then they're able to, these some of these property owners, um, you know, the Ashizawa family behind Soko Hardware, the Seiki family behind another hardware store, um, the Honamis behind a stationary shop. They're able to turn to um, the city, the redevelopment agency and say, look, we have this idea for a tourist place. Um, you know, we, we, we could partner with you, right? If we could partner with the city, the city could show their cosmopolitanism, could show their partnership with this important ally and could um, show also crucially, right, their support for um, racial minorities in the city. So at the same time that they are, as that one caller said, uh, the city is evicting African-American residents, Japanese-American residents, Chinese-American residents and Filipinos too in, in the Western edition, um, Japanese Americans are able to form this partnership with the city that again leads to like Nihonmachi. Um, it's a it's a very convoluted long process that ends up taking decades, and not everyone is able to participate. Of course, low income renters, for example, are not obviously not able to participate in the same way. So it's very uneven. But at the same time, um, for people with a certain amount of either social or economic capital, um, they can in fact kind of build on these developments, both of World War II, ironically, as well as the Cold War. Thank you so much. We have been talking about how the forced removal of Japanese Americans reshaped the Bay Area during and after World War II with Meredith Oda, an associate professor of history and associate chair of the Department of Gender, Race, and Identity at the University of Nevada, Reno. Thank you so much, Professor Oda. Thank you. We've also been joined by Charlotte Brooks, professor of history in Baruch College, City University of New York. Thank you, Professor Brooks. Uh, thanks for having me. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susan Britton, Dan Zoll, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith with help from Lakshmi Sarah. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.